Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Uh, I hope you've got your uh, your cup nearby. Uh, Ready to go. Have that Joe to get going in the morning. It's <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> we've got to have myself. It's three before I can really click on all cylinders. And uh, today we've got a special guest uh, here at Ortho Joe. Uh, my uh, former partner, Bruce Sanjorzen, professor of orthopedics at the University of Washington, and I would say world-renowned foot and ankle researcher. And uh, we recruited him to get involved in this discussion because neither Mo or, or I are interested in the topic which I thought of. It's kind of my turn as we alternate, and that's uh, ankle replacement. So uh, I've got my 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 coffee. I, I'm in short sleeves uh, because uh, uh, yesterday was 85 degrees in Minneapolis, setting a record. And then secondarily, uh, short sleeves is born in. Uh, in honor of Bob Buholz, uh, our late uh, deputy editor who's with the journal for over 25 years, deputy editor of trauma. Bob hated long sleeves and always wore short sleeves. Didn't matter if it was 20 below. So uh, Bob was a great, great enthusiast about orthopedic journal clubs and our, our JBGS journal clubs are named, named in his honor. So here's to Bob. So Wonderful. ankle replacement, ankle replacement. Let's talk about this. So. As always, as I'm inclined, I am inclined to do when I think of a topic, I like to go to what's been coming into the journal uh, in increasing numbers, and that's what brought this topic about. We're seeing increasing submissions, mostly from high-volume centers around uh, uh, longer-term outcomes of ankle replacement. And as I looked at our portfolio of what we published recently, I, I came across this, uh, this uh, manuscript from the Canadian group. Uh, Mo, you're quite aware of this very productive Canadian foot and ankle group. Right. And it's basically a cohort study that uh, compared the outcomes from uh, open ankle arthrodesis, arthroscopic ankle arthrodesis, and the Hintegra total ankle replacement. And, and the, the, uh, the patients were uh, recruited from 02 to 2012. So a little bit out of date, I think. Um, and the findings were quite, quite interesting. Uh, of course, the total ankle uh, replacement group underwent more reoperations than the either one of the uh, approaches for ankle arthrodesis, but the revision rates uh, were similar for all the groups. And interestingly, the improvement in the ankle arthritis scale total score was significantly larger for the ankle replacement group. So that's a little bit of background. And really, Bruce, the question for you and Mo is you know um, we are in a in a phase now where if you go to a middle-sized community in North America, you'll find practitioners that are comfortable with knee replacement, hip replacement, shoulder replacement. And my question to you is, how far are we away from having that community have somebody being willing and skilled to do total ankle replacement? I think it's a great question, and the challenge, of course, is unlike knee replacements, where 700,000 are done in a year, ankle replacements are probably somewhere in the 10 to 20,000 range per year. So getting qualified people to do it is a bit of a challenge. Um, people have handled that differently. We 
used criteria in our own study a few years ago in which the surgeons who participated need to have done 100 hip and knee replacements and have need to have done 10 directly supervised ankle replacements and had, had completed a fellowship in foot and ankle so they could get the key factors in. One, yeah. do you understand weight-bearing arthroplasty and joint alignment? Two, do you understand the foot and ankle environment? And three, has someone taught you how to do the particular tool that you're doing? So if you take those criteria, it'll help you screen, but it may be in some areas that you still have to travel a little bit. But given the fact that this is a device that's going to carry you forward for a decade or more, it's probably worth a little bit of travel. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm old enough to remember uh, when I was in training, you know, hip arthroplasty was really uh, being done by a large number of surgeons, but not knees at that time, because people were concerned about getting embarrassed and having early failures and, and things like that. And, you know, those concerns have uh, resolved with better alignment devices and teaching, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I want to come, I'm going to push you a little bit. How far do you, away do you think we are before that 20,000 per year number is 40,000 per year number because of better designed alignment devices, better implants, better training? Is it five years? Is it 20 years? Well, my guess is that it's less than five years. The when we started, um, when when Dr. Alvine came to Seattle and showed Dr. Hansen the device that he had created, a vast majority of people that we offered the device to said, no, I've heard ankle replacements are terrible. I'm not going to have one. But then 10 years later, when we began a, a trial, a sponsored trial to allow patients as a cohort study, we, it was about 50-50 where patients said, I won't have a fusion and I won't have an arthroplasty. So we hit a little bit of a balance. And then five years after that, we started an NIH randomized trial on the subject and almost no one would randomize. So we had done a prior um, study in which we asked people, had this been a randomized trial, would you have been willing to be randomized? And about 60% of them said yes. By the time the trial started in 2011, we got 2% willing to randomize and had to abandon the randomization. So people are getting to understand that it's an option. They frequently have friends that have had them done now, so they seek out the source where the friend had them done. So it still is growing. We're a little bit impaired by the fact that they're being done by people with no skill in any of those areas, no wow. hip skill, no knee skill, and no ankle skill, because there are... Um, boards that allow people to do it without the proper training. So that gives us some negative view from the public. But as you point out, studies are changing. They're showing much better improvement in the lowered number of revisions and the higher outcomes that are found with the ankle replacements. Yeah. Mo, uh, have you learned anything at OrthoEvidence about any particular features about design of prostheses that, that has come, come about? You know what, <clears throat> I mean, from us, you know, going back to the COFAS group, the Canadian uh, Foot and Ankle Society group, um, they have really been pushing a lot of the, you know, sort of the collaborative trials. I'm sure, Bruce, you're aware of some of the work they've, do they've been doing. They have always been in pursuit of the randomized trial. To your point, Bruce, also, you know, um, they did, I believe, last year uh, at the American Academy present a small study of 39 ankles and 39 patients, 19 patients per arm, where they 
concluded as a group that there was no differences. I think with 39 patients, you would almost be finding no differences. So I'm not sure that has moved it forward, but it was a pilot study. And I'm guessing the, there is a push uh, to get that information out there. And my guess, I guess my general question, Bruce, to you would be, is how far are we truly from being able to have a randomized trial? And I guess the other question is, is it even reasonable to consider that a randomized trial is actually going to be the right study designed for this? Have, have we gotten past that point where it's no longer, some might perceive ethical to do a trial? Yes. Are, are we in a position with the total hip? You know, we never had an RCT for total hip, so. Well, there, there has been a randomized trial for ankle replacement and ankle fusion carried out in the UK. I don't think any of the data have been published yet. And the, our trial back in the early era, around 2010, started out as a, as a randomized trial with a patient preference cohort. So we have talked to the authors and included the COFAS group in putting data together, combining those data sets so that we could analyze it as if it was done as a patient preference cohort. So they have a randomized group and we have a non-randomized group as a cohort and using those data together. To most question, I think it's probably the barn doors closed on a randomized trial in, the, in, the, in North America because the, there are just too many data points out there for people to be willing to go back and do that. But I, I, we're hoping sometime in the near future, we'll be able to aggregate those data because there's currently no um, database registry for ankle replacements. What this group did, Velkovich et al., they narrowed it down. They used a single implant and they only used what they call COFAS-1 group, which is the ankles that aren't terribly misaligned in the coronal or sagittal plane. So they're trying to narrow down the group that they're studying so they can get a little bit more refined data out of it. Also, um, are, they, are they limiting BMI in, the, in that uh, study, Bruce? The average BMI was, I think, around 28. And the patients that had fusion and the patients that had replacements did differ on their BMI, just like a lot of the other studies. The heavier patients got directed into the fusion group and the lighter patients, older patients got directed into the arthroplasty group. Yeah. So functional demand is a, is a, is an issue of consideration here. Yes, oh, Chris, my question. Yeah, go ahead. Go. Oh, no, Mo, go ahead. I was going to say, but my question would be: Let's just say you argue, like with you know, with most trials, even if it's a couple of hundred patients. I think that you're talking about the TARVA trial, correct, Bruce? Is that, or is, I think correct. the acronym was TARVA. Okay. Yes. So let's say let's say it's a couple of hundred patients, and let's say once again it says, you know, we don't find a major difference, but is a no difference fundamentally uh, a still a win for the total ankle? I mean, I guess the point is in any possible situation, short of you know, ankle arthrodesis coming out significantly better. I believe the ankle arthro, uh, you know, ankle arthroplasty is going to be a defined uh, choice. And maybe I'm missing something here. Well, you're right. That patients don't want to give up motion. Right. And they have significant reservations about it. But also, a large percentage of patients presenting with ankle arthritis already have degenerative changes in their triple joints, which makes them poor candidates for fusion. And those patients typically aren't included in the trials because they confuse the uh, study groups. But that whole population who'd had a triple already or who has subtalar arthritis, they're not good candidates for an ankle fusion. And a pantalar fusion is nowhere near as functional as a replacement or an isolated ankle fusion. So there's still, even in the circumstances you laid out, there's still a population there that will benefit from an ankle replacement. 
Got it. Great. So Bruce, I want to uh, I, I want to push a little bit on the prosthetic design uh, question. Are there elements that are common to the ones that seem to be the most successful? The early devices were relatively well bonded on the tibial side, but poorly bonded on the Taylor side. That flipped a few years ago uh, when the Salto Tolaris device came out. It um, it was bonded well on both sides, but it had limitations in its sizes available. Most of the devices now either try to create an upright peg into the tibia and some type of um, combination of factors on the Taylor side, and that's largely successful. The limitation there, of course, is the space you have to work in. If you're gonna get a stem up into the tibia, you need to figure out how you're gonna do that. So one that has a large stem drills up through the bottom of the foot and assembles the stem in the small space you have between the talus and the tibia. Remember, this is not like a knee where you can flex it to 160 degrees and have a straight shot. So most of the other devices have created smaller number of pegs that are shorter and are more upright. And for the most part, we're just looking at our own study where we have a sizable chunk of patients past 10 years. And it appears that if they bond early within the first year, they're still bonded 10 years later. We're, we're not seeing anywhere near the degree of aseptic loosening we were back in the 90s. I just have one last uh, technical question uh, for you, Bruce. Uh, are the results when you have to do a adjacent osteotomy to correct alignment, are they dramatically worse than those where you don't have to do that sort of additional correction? Yeah, that's a really important question. We just, we learned early on that there was an inverse correlation to the number of procedures you did, that patients did less well if you did a lot of procedures at the same time. So we moved to doing major things like a high tibial osteotomy, I'm sorry, a, a supramalleolar osteotomy or a subtalar fusion to correct a hindfoot deformity. We now do those staged. If it's a simple thing like cutting the heel and moving it over, we'll do that at the same time, or a simple thing like tail and avicular joint, do that at the same time. But we have limited that for reasons that we weren't clear that those patients weren't doing as well. And that was something we learned back around 2004, 2005. That's great. Well, I think, uh, I think you've kind of laid out uh, what we can expect the future to be for this uh, device. It sounds like five to 10 years, maybe that uh, mid-sized community is now gonna have this uh, procedure available. And I think you've nicely laid out what, what the, the standards need to be as far as understanding on the part of the surgeon and training, et cetera. So it's been very helpful, uh, Bruce, to help a couple trauma surgeon eggheads uh, understand <laughs> what the future is for ankle arthroplasty. So um, to our audience, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this discussion with an expert. And uh, please remember that if you've got uh, questions or comments that you want us to address in an upcoming issue of Ortho Joe or a suggestion for a topic we could cover, uh, the uh, email is orthojoe at jbjs.org. And we'd love to uh, hear from you and get some feedback on whether or not we're catching your interest. So Bruce, thanks for getting up uh, so early. Uh, 6 a.m. Seattle time to help us out and uh, enjoy the coffee and enjoy the day. Thanks, everybody. Awesome. Cheers. Have a great day, Bruce. Have Cheers. a great day, Mark. Thanks, Bruce.